First of all, it's kind of fun to hear all the kids talking and stuff in the back. Real organic. You know, I love it. Last week we had a young member of the girls trying to crawl on the stage and hit me. Remember, that was kind of fun. Um, that was. That was fun. Listen, it's great to be part of a family. It's great to see our family growing. Great to have the students who are in Montreat back. Uh, and woo! Um, and uh, I just want you guys to know how much I enjoy Sunday mornings. It's so much fun. I really look forward to it all week. We were trying to figure out a way to become better shepherds of our congregation as we shepherd the flock that's around us and among us. So if you'll notice, we have a new bulletin, a new church uh, worship guide. And uh, one of the things we want to encourage you, I mentioned it last week, we want to become more interactive within our service. And so we're trying to take away the taboo of cell phones uh, and PDAs during the service. You can't use them for texting because, you know, you go to hell if you do that. But still, <laughs> um, we're going to have some interactive stuff. There's a, there's a barcode scanner on our bulletin you can use to go to our Facebook page and like if you're here. That, it's really raw right now. We've hired somebody to help us kind of get all that stuff squared away and really make it state-of-the-art. But we're going to start using the, uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, Twitter to do a lot more shepherding during the week of what we're talking about, what we're discussing, what's going on in the garden service. I'm very excited about it. it's going to bring our family together and cause more conflict. It's very, very excited. Because if you remember last week, I mentioned to you that uh, intimacy breeds conflict. And what our tendency is as humans is to run away from the conflict and avoid it and get past it, right? But in reality, what we see in Scripture is that conflict is often very fertile ground for growth and for transformation of lives. And I also mentioned to you that if you have a church that has no conflict, it's probably not a very good church. Because we know we talk about, oh, we want to be like the New Testament church, all oh, the New Testament church. We got, the New Testament church we mentioned last week is very messy. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of disagreements. Peter and Paul, the two biggest members of the New Testament church, were at each other's throats for years. And so we cannot be afraid of conflict. However, we do need to find ways to address conflict in a biblical manner. And that's what our study of Philemon is about. And so this week, you better recognize. Because see, before you can really understand the benefit of conflict, you need to recognize, fool. That's on the hat. You need to recognize that God is at work. And if you approach conflict with that mindset that, man, these are exactly the opportunities that God uses to transform lives. I mean, if you think about it, most of the time when God worked, it really wasn't a result of peace or tranquility, was it? I mean, most of the time, Old Testament and New Testament... Just about every time there was a big movement of God, it was right around something that happened that was violent or something that was, that was contentious or something that was uncomfortable. Like, for example, you know, the death of our Savior. David and Goliath. David and Bathsheba. And I'm really excited in the fall in October, we're going to start a lengthy series on the life of David. And I'm really kind of working on it now. I'm, I'm so excited about it. But you begin to see that when God works, it's usually because there's some bad stuff going on under the surface. We chase this panacea of if we can just all get along, 
We chase this dream, this, this pipe dream that somehow if we just all become peaceful and coexist with one another as a church and, and we don't ever cross each other's path and we're all so gracious and loving and humble and kind and none of you are that. <laughs> Me either. And if we're waiting for that, for God to use us, we're going to be waiting an awful long time. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became while in prison. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let me give you a little bit of education here. The word bondservant, a lot of versions translate it slave. I want you to erase the concept of slavery that we had, the evil of slavery that we had in this country with African Americans. That's not what the type of slavery we're talking about here. Indentured servants were those who owed a lot of money for whatever reason, and sometimes the only way they could pay it off was to work it off. And so they would become an indentured servant of somebody that that person would provide them housing and food and all those things. And sometimes, not always, right? But sometimes, especially if you had somebody that you were working for like Philemon, who was a very gracious and generous person, as an indentured servant, you were probably taken care of pretty well. It all depended on who you owed money to. So that's the type of indentured servant. I don't want you to think that, you know, Philemon had bought Onesimus in a slave market and really would beaten him and it wasn't anything like that. He owed money and this was the way he was working it off. So with that in mind, I want to go through this passage and lay out some points for you that I want you to, I want you to highlight in your mind and then we're going to discuss how we bring them together and apply it tomorrow. And maybe even after this sermon today. Don't pick on your brother. Here's what Paul says. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Later on in the same book, we see Paul say, don't forget, you owe me your own life besides. Paul had led Philemon to Christ. And so what Paul says is this, Onesimus is no longer your bondservant. He's no longer your enemy. He's no longer the guy you're fighting with. He's my child. He's my son. I've begotten him while in my chains, in jail. God brought him to me, and I had the privilege of leading him to a saving knowledge of Jesus. See, Paul clearly communicates that Onesimus is no longer all the things that Philemon thought he was. But rather, he was Philemon's brother now. So Paul tries to elevate in one fell swoop. He tries to take Onesimus from being an indentured servant who stole and maybe even had an addiction of some type. We don't know. It could have been anything. And raised him up from being useless to incredibly valuable and appear to Philemon. Wow. 
So don't pick on your brother, Philemon. Second, you don't know me? Verse 11 to 13, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul is so good at this, isn't he? I'm sending you my very heart. He says, and when I send you Onesimus, I'm sending you just about every bit of passion that I can muster for ministry. Paul had fallen in love with this guy and what God had done in his life. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. See, what we see here is Paul had high confidence in the work that God had done in Onesimus' life. He wanted Philemon to know that Onesimus was not the man he once knew. He wanted him to know, in fact, that Philemon knew very little about this Onesimus. As a matter of fact, we understand the name Onesimus was a new name that Paul had given him, meaning profitable. We don't know what his name was before. Paul stopped calling him by his old name. And he was almost like, I'm introducing you to this new person, Philemon, that you really don't know. I know there was a past, but I'm telling you right now, he's one of the most valuable members of my ministry team. No matter what happened in the past, no matter how he hurt you, no matter all I can tell you is right now, I really don't need him to leave. I need him here, but I'm sending him anyway. I'm sending you my very heart. Philemon, I'm making a massive sacrifice in sending Onesimus back to you because this guy is incredible. I mean, could you imagine how affirmed Onesimus must be feeling right now to have the Apostle Paul, church planter extraordinaire, saying these things about him to the guy that Onesimus owed a ton of money to? Talk about a reference letter. Whew. You're my boy, and I believe in you. Verse 14, I'm going to read this to you. Here's what Paul says. I could have kept him here, and I could have made you recognize who Onesimus is. But I preferred you to nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. Here's what Paul is saying. Philemon, listen. I could have done this by apostolic authority. I could have just said, you know what? Forgive him the debt. Forget the past. It's done. Onesimus is now a servant. He's your brother. He's a servant of God, and he's your brother. He's your equal. Paul says, you know, I could have done that, but no, I want your goodness, which I believe in, by the way, because I know you, Philemon. I know you just as well as I know Onesimus. I know that given the opportunity, you're going to do what's right. Now, there's nothing like a little apostolic pressure there, huh? I could make you do this, but I'm going to let you decide to do it. <laughs> but, you know, Paul believed in Philemon. Look at the way he greeted him in chapter, you know, in, in, in verse, first couple of verses. 
And listen now, don't forget, this wasn't just a private letter. Remember we talked about this last week. There are at least three or four other people who are addressed in this letter who know what's going on. So there's a lot of accountability involved. But Paul says, I believe in you, Philemon. I know you're generous. You host a church in your house. You're a leader. I know you were hurt. But I'm sending this guy back that you don't really know. It's a new person. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I don't know what he was struggling with, or I know what he was struggling with before, but that's not him anymore. I'm sending him back to you because I know that you're not going to bring him back and make him work off the debt. I know you're going to receive him just like you would me. And he had confidence that God was at work in Philemon. So we see two people that God has confidence, or that Paul has confidence in. He has confidence in what God is doing in Onesimus, and he has confidence in what God is doing in Philemon. It's pretty exciting if you think about it. Can you imagine, just real quick, a little preview? Can you imagine how beneficial conflict could be if the first thing you could do is recognize God at work in the other person? Could you imagine? Guys, just think about that for a minute. I'm really mad at Megan, but I know God's at work in her life. That was, you know, not real. I'm not really mad at her. <laughs> Dylan says, I better not be. All right. Dude, I'm working here. Verse 15 and 16. For this perhaps, Philemon, is why he was departed from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? There is some speculation that Onesimus and Philemon were related. And some people think it could have been a brother. Some people think it could have been a cousin. We're not sure. We don't know specifically. But you can understand why the betrayal would be even deeper on Philemon's behalf if that were the case. Because he says he's not just a brother in the flesh, but also in the Lord. And what Paul says is, perhaps, Philemon, you had to go through this little bit of pain here for the benefit of millions of others. You see, you cannot allow your personal justice that you want meted out in a conflict to be an obstacle to God's plan. Our selfishness makes us focus on the resolution that we want. We want to be made whole. We want to speak our mind. We want to kick some you-know-what. We want the bill paid. What if God's resolution, while maybe costing a little bit more, is better, is different? See, Philemon probably would have preferred, before all this happened, that Onesimus had just worked off his debt and never stolen from him or never ran away. And when he did run away... Philemon probably would have preferred 
that he be sent back and make things right. Make it whole. It's only fair. But without that conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, Paul would have never had the relationship with Onesimus that produced salvation. Nor would Paul have benefited like he did from Onesimus' ministry to Paul. Which, since then, thousands, maybe millions, have been blessed. Just thousands in those days. Just in the letters that were delivered by Onesimus and Tychicus to Colossae and other places. Think about how beneficial those letters have been to us. Think about what they must have done for the early church. And so this relationship that went sour between Philemon and Onesimus produced this bevy of good works that Onesimus just stumbled into. For by grace you say through faith, even that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works or else you brag, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He prepared beforehand that we should basically, what the scripture teaches us in the original language, trip over. God's plan is so much bigger than our conflicts and our perceived necessary resolution. You think Philemon had any clue about how powerfully God planned to use this conflict? Philemon dies, Onesimus dies, and the beneficial ripple effects. We talked about that last series about why bad things happen. The ripple effects of that conflict have echoed for generation after generation. This story has impacted so many people. You think Philemon had any clue that when Onesimus betrayed him and ran away, that it would end up being one of the greatest ministry stories of all time? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's the idea of brothers again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The idea of conflict is in there, is it not? If God is for us, then who can be in conflict with us? He who did not spare his own son, cost. We're going to talk about that specifically next week. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him graciously give us all things? We must learn to live with the assumption that God's hand is at work in all relationships at all times. Let me tell you a personal story. I was just telling my wife about it last night because I, I realized I'd never really told her this story, but it was one of the formative events in my ministry career very early on. I still cry sometimes just thinking about it. Brand new pastor in a church in Columbia, South Carolina. 
I'm the pastor in charge of evangelism and student ministry, right? Because I did student ministry for like 27 years. This was my first job as a full-time youth pastor. I was also in charge of evangelism. And God was doing some pretty cool stuff in the ministry. It was growing. And there was a church downtown. See, we were kind of a suburb church. And there was a church downtown, First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. A good, solid church. The pastor had been there for decades. Incredible godly man. Well-known theologian. Very astute teacher. Very respected and revered all throughout the southeast. But there was something that happened by one of his staff that really made me angry. I didn't like the way they infringed on somebody else's life who was part of our church. I was very frustrated. So I called him up, this senior pastor, church of three or 4,000 people. And I told him exactly what was wrong. And I laid it out for him. I blasted him. I said, this is what's going on in your stats. It's going on here. I don't appreciate it. And I just, I let him have it. And I said, I'll follow up with you in a couple of days to see how you're doing. (laughs) Okay, Joe, look forward to hearing from you. (laughs) I hung up the phone. And right away, God started saying, who do you think you are? (laughs) And by that, you know, back then it was, you know, the internet wasn't so easy. I was on Prodigy. You all remember that, the dial-up? But... I did do some research on this pastor, and I said, oh, my gosh. I was talking like that to this guy. You know what was amazing is he just listened and was so gracious. I mean, he just heard this young buck, this this young pastor, 26, 27, right? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anything compared to this guy. He's like, you know, the Einstein of pastors, and I'm just ripping him a new one, you know, just tearing him to shreds. And, and he just listens, listens graciously and, and so humbly and, and just lets me vent. And I just thought, oh, my word, I can't believe I did. So I called him back in a couple of days, but it wasn't to see how he was doing in the progress of what I wanted him to do. It was to apologize. So I called him up and I said, Pastor, listen, the things I said to you, I don't know what I was thinking. I was emotional, and, and you understand, I was kind of dealing with, you know, some people that I'm trying to shepherd, and, and man, I just want you to know that I just feel awful about it. He says, that's okay, Joe, don't worry about it. I said, well, how could you just sit there with a guy like me, arrogant, young, doesn't know anything, and I'm lecturing you on how to be a pastor, how could you just sit right there? What was the miraculous thing that kept you from tearing my head apart or telling on me to my senior pastor? What? Why, you know, what? And he said some things to me that, uh, here's what he said. He says, Joe, I remember when you first came to town, how excited your pastor was for you to be here. He says, I've heard about what's going on in your ministry, the things you're doing in the inner city. I was coaching football in an inner city public school. As it's the things you're doing in evangelism in your church and the student ministry, how much it's grown. He goes, you know, you have a reputation around town of being very effective at what you do. He says, and I'm excited. This is the pastor that I just ripped a couple. He goes, I'm excited about what God's doing in your life in our town. I am so thankful that you're here. And I knew you were upset. You were just being a pastor who was trying to protect some of the people in his flock that you perceived there was an injustice. And he said, to me, that's a great thing. And I just want you to know that when I heard all that, I heard the emotion, I just filtered it through love because I know who you are and I know what God is doing in your life. 
Guys, uh, I just started bawling. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I still cry sometimes. It was such an impact on me to hear this guy talk to me this way. And then after I blasted him, he says, you know why I was able to hear it? Because I know what God is doing in your life is amazing. Now you tell me, how does that sound for conflict resolution? In every relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ, be they harmonious or contentious, we must learn to live with the assumption, guys, that God's hand is at work in all relationships at all times. And if you approach a conflict with the mindset of this, God is doing something in their life. It might change the way you interact with them. As a matter of fact, it might change how much you're willing to pay for restoration. 